I do have a bottle of water this week. <clears throat> well, good morning. <clears throat> Before we get started, I do want to thank Noah for a, a great Sunday school lesson this morning. If you weren't here during the 9 o'clock hour, I'd encourage you to listen to that this week. Faithful exegesis of the text and some good application for us as well from the book of Hebrews. We will be in Galatians chapter 1 and 2 this morning, and if you're seeing that that scope of verses and you're going, oh, that's a lot of verses. It is, uh, but we, we kind of need to cover this for our purposes in a, in a larger chunk, and I'll explain why as we go through. We'll periodically go back into Acts as well as we go through this section of the letter. Basically, this morning we're reading one of Paul's autobiographies. We have several of these testimonies from Paul himself within Scripture. And and in order to make his plea to the Galatians, last week we talked about the primacy of the gospel, Paul is drawing on his own personal history. He's pointing at his own conversion and, and showing the grace of God through it. He's pointing back to past conflicts that he's had as an apostle, as a as an evangelist. Uh, in the resistance of, uh, of folks that didn't want to hear the gospel or wanted to prevent the gospel from being preached. And that's exactly what's happening in Galatia. So simply put, Paul is a pastor. Paul cares for his flock. I mean, we know Paul is this extremely intelligent, passionate, committed guy, but he's a minister. He's a faithful minister and shepherd. What is required of a faithful minister and shepherd. One of the answers I found is from the writings of William Perkins. William Perkins was an English Puritan. You can see he lived a while back, 1558 to 1602. He's really known for his work on preaching. But he talks about what it means to be a faithful pastor. And he says, He that would be a faithful minister of the gospel must deny the pride of his heart and be emptied of ambition and set himself wholly to seek the glory of God in his calling. And generally, he that would be a faithful servant of Christ must set God before him as a judge, and consider that he hath to deal with God, and that he must turn his mind and senses from the world and all things therein to God, and seek above all things to approve his thoughts, desires, affections, and all his doings unto him. He also said, quite simply in exhorting the preacher, preach one Christ by Christ to the praise of Christ. It's about Christ. And I would say, based on what we read this morning, based on the passion and the protection that we see in this letter, the Apostle Paul was just such a faithful minister. He was just such a focused preacher. Let me open us in prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for our time that we've been together in your word already. Thank you for the time that we've been able to worship your worthy name. Bless the preaching of your word this morning. Lord, be glorified. Thank you for our gathering here as a church body under your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Here is our outline for today, and you'll see we're going to start with verses 10 to 12, which talks about Paul's motivation and message. And I really want that to be kind of the core understanding of what Paul is saying. And then we will take a leap into Paul's testimony. Now, that's where we're going to cover a lot of ground. Why are we covering that much ground? Well, because recently we've covered a lot of this ground in the book of Acts, and I don't want to be redundant, but... 
As I told Noah this morning, I'm an expository preacher. I can't just go, oh, we talked about this already, let's move on. No, we've got to preach every verse. That's what we're committed to, and we will preach these verses. And so we will have to run through and kind of match up to what we're talking about in Acts uh, as we lay out this autobiographical s- sketch. So I want to move fairly quickly through that section. I'll try to be as clear as I possibly can. We're going to point back to Acts to color in the narrative, and we're going to examine why Paul decides to include an autobiography right now. Why does he break in the middle of his letter and just say, let me tell you a little bit about myself. Once upon a time, there was this Jewish man named Paul, and he's going to tell him all about that, more accurately, Saul at that point. Let's start with verse 10. He asks rhetorical questions. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So before launching into his personal testimony, Paul sets forth a vindication of his ministry and his motivations. He says, I am a servant of God, not men. Paul preached the gospel. Paul preached grace. And he's going to return to these truths unapologetically again and again in this letter. And his testimony is an appropriate place to start Because to Paul, there's no greater example of God's grace and mercy than in his conversion to Christ. I hope many of us in this room can say the same thing. That there is no greater example of grace than what he has shown you and I in our salvation. Two questions. One, am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Why does he ask that question? Well, because both Paul's message and his motivation have been questioned. There's a touch of sarcasm in Paul's voice. I always appreciate it when the apostle has a little sarcasm because I'm fluent in that language. But as he rebuts the charge, he says, you think I'm the sort of preacher that soft pedals the message? You think I'm the kind of guy that changes the gospel so people will like me more? He's almost going, did you see what I just wrote? I just said anybody that changes the gospel, let him be accursed. Let him be condemned to hell. It's like, who who do you think that I am? Now, don't misunderstand Paul. He knows he could never win the favor of God on his own merit. He's not saying, I serve God and then God gives me blessings. No, that's not it. The letter's going to make that clear. He's simply identifying, I have a master, and it's not these men. I don't cater to the needs of the people. I cater to God's desires, God's law. I am obedient to what he has given me. He follows it up and says, am I, am I striving to please men? Am I striving to, to, to make men like me? Notice if we keep reading the still in the rest of that verse. If I were still trying to please men, what does that tell us? Well, Paul used to be concerned with what men thought. I used to do this very thing that maybe he is being charged with. There was a time when Paul did indeed seek the praise of men. Before his conversion to Christ, remember, he was on the fast track. He was the rock star of first century Judaism. He was moving into the highest echelons of the rabbinic establishment, perhaps a member of the Sanhedrin at a very young age. His entire career, including the persecution of Christians, was designed not only to justify himself before God, but also to curry the favor of those in power. Why? To advance his own ambitions. He used to be Paul-centered. He wanted to drive Paul's career. But then Saul of Tarsus met Jesus of Nazareth. He met the Savior on that road outside Damascus. And I, I think what Paul would tell you is that serving Christ and pleasing humanity are mutually exclusive alternatives. 
He says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant, a doulos, a slave of Christ. So before we get to Paul's autobiography, let's pull that back to ourselves and let's make sure we have some self-examination. We must ask ourselves, who do we serve in our ministry? In this age of slick marketing, advertising, many churches see visitors as prospective customers. And they believe the church experience should be specifically catered to each individual. Something for everyone. Have it your way. In the other ditch is the inflexible mode of church that offers nothing for anyone. Our way or the highway. That's also incompatible with Scripture. Paul's asking us all to check our hearts, to put the Lord and his gospel first. He must increase, we must decrease. Paul's compelled to preach the gospel not for the favor and praise of men, but for the glory of God. At the same time, Paul wants desperately for people to hear the gospel. And he is passionately protective of those that he's preached it to already. Paul is not just an angry preacher. He's an apostle rejecting any suggestion that his motivations for ministry are impure or selfishly motivated. His message is the one and only gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only way to salvation. And so Paul is reminding the Galatians, and he's reminding us, that the gospel's not for sale, and that the gospel's not a marketing tool. It needs no flashy salesman. It's also not our personal plaything that we mold into our own image. As Spurgeon so wonderfully said, the gospel is a caged lion. It does not need to be defended. It just needs to be let out of its cage. Verse 11. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we're starting a section now that contains the longest and most thorough autobiographical material we have from Paul's pen. We get more from Luke's pen, but this is Paul. And they supplement Luke's writings very significantly in Paul's background, his conversion, his early missionary activity. And, And this entire section and the prominence it holds in Galatians, it takes up a good chunk of this letter, one fourth of the book if you're keeping track underscores the fact, and I've hit this before, that Christianity is a historical faith. He says, I went to this place at this time and met these people. What's Paul saying? I dare you to go talk to them. Go ask them. People saw me there. I interacted with them. They know who I was. It's based upon certain specific, irreversible, irreducible historical events. We see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus was born during the imperial reign of Caesar Augustus. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He rose on the third day. He ascended to heaven 40 days later. Christianity is not a philosophy of life only. It's not a set of moral precepts. It's not a secret code in how we know who God is. No, at its core, Christianity is the record of what God has done, is doing, and will do. It's the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ, from creation to, uh, to culmination in the end times. And part of that was the calling of a man named Saul of Tarsus. And Saul relates that, Paul relates that as history. For I would have you know, is Paul's way of saying, let me be perfectly clear. Check my work. One translator paraphrases Paul's statement, My gospel and my preaching of the gospel do not belong to the purely human level of existence, 
The gospel message did not come to me through human channels. It was not mediated to me through any man. And my preaching of the gospel has not been guided by human motives and ambitions. Paul is removing the self, removing any kind of movement, removing any kind of teacher save Christ. Remember his greeting back in 1-1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, but through Jesus Christ. Paul neither received it through tradition, nor was taught it through the ordinary means of instructions. Here's the interesting thing. Paul did not learn the gospel like you and I learn the gospel. He had special instruction. It's a powerful claim. He's differentiating his reception of the gospel from the normal manner. It was not through man's preaching that Paul received the gospel. He claims to have received the message of salvation from the risen Christ. He is claiming direct and special revelation. As I often say with many of the statements that Jesus made, this statement is absolutely blasphemous unless it's true. Unless it's true. Understand, Paul is not arguing that the gospel he received was different. Only the manner of transmission. The ultimate conclusion of this talk will be that the gospel he received was identical to the one being preached by the original apostles, despite the fact that they've never met, despite the fact that he never sat at their feet. The Lord provided Paul the gospel. That's not to say Paul was completely ignorant of the Christian faith. He persecuted it. He knew their beliefs. But before Christ illuminated him to the truth of Scripture, and I believe appeared to him in that time in Arabia, which we'll talk about momentarily, Paul could never understand or believe the truth. God had to gift him that faith. And he describes it as a revelation, an apocalypsis, an unveiling of truth. What was revealed to Paul? Well, we don't know the precise content, but there are several gospel truths that must be included. What are the things that Paul says have to be in his gospel? Number one, a risen Savior. That God raised Jesus from the dead. Can't have a gospel without a risen Savior. If there were no resurrection, we are of all men most miserable. Paul saw Christ in living color on the Damascus Road. And God declared Jesus, the Son of God, in power, Romans chapter 1. Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Number three, Christ is coming again in power and glory, bringing history to a climactic closure in a display of divine judgment and wrath. Number four, God also saves the Gentiles, big piece of Paul's message. Paul himself had been commissioned to bring good news to all people, but specifically to the Gentiles. And then he preaches hard justification by faith alone, apart from the works of the law. We will hit that much in Galatians 3 and forward. The gospel he preaches is identical to the one preached by the apostles. That's Paul's point. Often the Gentile piece is attributed to Paul, but that was accomplished first through who? Peter to Cornelius. So the gospel that Paul preaches to Gentiles was first affirmed, rubber stamped by Peter, the chief apostle. And then Paul, without interacting with Peter, preaches that same gospel. How did that happen? Paul says, Christ told me. Christ revealed it to me. Paul's not piggybacking off of Peter. He's fulfilling a divine commission from Christ himself. Now, let's get to his testimony. 113 to 210, we'll cover that. And again, we will move through this fairly quickly, but I want to jump back to Acts and show you what he's talking about in each of these instances. Here's the big point of Paul's testimony. Nothing in Paul's religious background could account for his acceptance of the gospel. It makes no logical sense that Paul becomes an apostle. 
He is set for life. He has power. He has money. He has influence. And he trades that for persecution and beatings and jail and ultimately martyrdom. It defies all common sense unless he encountered the living God. He says in verse 13, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Destroy, literally, to create havoc. One of my favorite words, havoc. Luke uses the same term in Acts 8.3 where Paul ravages the church. As John Chrysostom put it, it signifies an attempt to extinguish, to pull down, to destroy, to annihilate the church. Paul doesn't say he bothered the church. He tried to destroy the church. And we saw instances of this in our study in Acts. Notice in Acts 7.58 and forward, when they had driven Stephen out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. 8.1, Saul was in hearty, dis, uh, hearty agreement with putting him to death. And then here's our word in verse 3, but Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Luke returns to Paul in Acts chapter 9, and he is doing much of the same thing. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, the faith of following Jesus, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He would later testify in Acts 22, I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. One more, Acts 26. So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. I think Stephen is one of those, but many others as well. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. In 1 Timothy 1.13, he calls himself a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. In 1 Corinthians 15.9, he says, For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. Why? Because I persecuted the church of God. Paul never runs from who he was before Christ because he wants to point out the great miracle that Christ did in his life. He continues in verse 14, And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. My ancestral traditions. Patricon mu paradosion, my father's traditions. The traditions of the fathers. This colored Paul's hatred of the church. He was deeply committed to these traditions. It emphasized his commitment to tradition over gospel. Legalism over gospel. And since Jesus' message targeted religious tradition and hypocrisy, it was especially dangerous in Paul's pre-converted mind. He said in Acts 22, that same testimony, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. That's a name drop. I was brought up under the best. That's a well-known rabbi. Strictly according to the law of our fathers, there's those ancestral traditions, being zealous for God, just as all, you all are today. The idea that Jesus was the Messiah was offensive enough. But then add in a crucified Messiah, a resurrected Messiah, an exalted Messiah, combined with Jesus' status as God in the flesh. Oh, that stood in opposition to oral tradition, religious law, the Jewish authorities. 
It had to be quelled in Paul's mind. He saw himself as Phineas, violently ending the rebellion at the tip of a spear. The cross was his stumbling block. The idea of a suffering Messiah stirred his pharisaical heart to rage, and so he cried, Havoc, and let's slip the dogs of war. He learned Judaism from the best. He was committed. He continues in Acts 26, So then all Jews know my manner of life from my youth up, which from the beginning was spent among my own nation and at Jerusalem. Since they have known about me for a long time, if they are willing to testify that I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion. Of course, he would double down on that in the brother to the Philippians, where he gives his Jewish resume, and it is a resume par excellence. He says, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which was in the law found blameless. Of course, the context of Philippians, Paul is saying, you want to talk about following the law? I follow the law better than anybody. And you know what I found out? It was rubbish compared to the grace of Christ. Understand, Paul's zeal arose out of sincere religious convictions. As misguided as they were, he was a sincere and zealous guy. He had high moral expectations. He's not Batman's joker. He has a plan. This activity was a resume builder in the Jewish world, persecuting the church. He thought he was doing the Lord's work. That's why the Lord has to come to him in such a personal way. And that's what he talks about in verse 15. But when God who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul makes clear who the initiator of this story was. There's an Ephesians 2-4 kind of spin to this, but when God stepped in. And he, does, he, he notes three acts of God. He said he set me apart, he called me, and he revealed his son in me. Set me apart is the same word as Romans 1.1, where he said he was set apart for the gospel of God. Guess what the word means? To determine beforehand. I was predestined to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. It means to fix a boundary, to cordon off for a special purpose. It's Ephesians 1.4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. This terminology echoes the setting apart of the prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah who were called to service to God. John Calvin said this separation was God's purpose by which Paul was appointed to the apostolic office before he was aware of his own existence. God initiated this. He called me. Not only was Paul chosen from eternity, set apart from his mother's womb, but he also was called by God at a specific point in his life. At just the right time, Christ came to save sinners. The effectual call of God includes repentance and faith by which a lost sinner is converted to Christ. The fact is, we were all once Lazarus, spiritually dead, until we answered the voice of our Savior who called us from death into life. He revealed his Son in me, perhaps through me, is another way to read that, in that Paul was entrusted by Christ with the gospel. This guy, the guy that persecuted the church, he was given the responsibility to preach the gospel. The revelation of Jesus, the apocalypsis, once again, was a physical revelation. Christ physically appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road. In 1 Corinthians 9.1, he asked the Corinthians, Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And why? Well, there's a purpose clause there. So that I might preach him among the Gentiles. 
The scope and the specificity of Paul's apostolic mission isn't coincidental. He was not merely called to be a, a, a pastor or a minister. He's called to be an apostle, an apostle to the Gentiles. Paul called himself that in Romans eleven thirteen, First 1 Timothy 2, 7. I return to William Perkins again, our Puritan friend from the beginning. He said, ministers of the gospel must learn Christ as Paul learned him. They may not content themselves with that learning which they find in schools, but they must proceed further to a real learning of Christ. See, Paul knew the Scriptures, but he didn't know God. They that must convert others, it is meet that they should be effectually converted. John must eat the book and then prophesy. And they who would be fit ministers of the gospel must first themselves eat the book of God. And this book is indeed eaten when they are not only in their minds enlightened, but in their hearts are mortified and brought in subjection to the word of Christ. That's what happened in Acts chapter 9 to Paul. He says in verse 16, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Again, just to get us into the timeline, again, I'll move through this fairly quickly, but here's our timeline. By my lights, Paul is converted somewhere around 34 and 35 A.D., He spends three years in Damascus where he baptizes, he gets his sight back, remember, from Ananias, and he starts to preach. Sometime during those three years, he leaves Damascus and goes and lives in the wilderness of Arabia. He then returns to Damascus uh, between Acts 9.22 and 9.23, if you're keeping track back there. So let's jump back into that. When he comes back, here's what it says. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were also watching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. That's 37 AD. He escapes from Damascus in that basket out of the wall. And then he makes his first visit to Jerusalem. This is Galatians 1.18. Here we are. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. So the first time he encounters an apostle is three years after his conversion. He's already been preaching. He's already been baptizing. I think he's already had his encounter with Christ in the wilderness. He also says, but I did not see any other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Again, three years following his conversion. Luke tells us in 926 of Acts When he came to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple, rightfully so. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, moving about freely in Jerusalem, speaking out boldly in the name of the Lord. Paul then pauses in verse 20 and gives us what you see in many of your versions as a parenthetical statement. And he says, now, in what I am writing to you, I assure you before God that I am not lying. Again, I met with Peter and James. Go talk to Peter and James. They will tell you. Paul is adamant that his apostleship is divine in origin. I didn't get it from them. They affirmed it for me. Paul affirms here in the strongest manner possible the veracity of what he had just told the Galatians. I mean, it is an outlandish statement. Christ came to me and explained the gospel to me. And he says, but look, go talk to these apostles. They will tell you when they met me, I was already preaching their gospel. We can only surmise that Paul's adversaries in Galatia had made much of the idea that Paul was preaching a different gospel. 
that he was a renegade against Peter and the other apostles. The timing and the character of his first visit to Jerusalem were critical to Paul's uh, refutation of that charge. Verse 21, he says, Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ. Remember, I've only met with Peter and James. But only they kept hearing, He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Right, let's line that up with Luke's account in Acts 9.29. And Paul was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. This is in Jerusalem. But they were attempting to put him to death. Hey, Paul's been saved three years and he's already had two murder plots. It's a pretty good start. Must be preaching good stuff. But when the brethren learned of it, the churches there in Jerusalem, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. Back in Galatians 1.21, I went to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Tarsus is a major city in Cilicia. Luke's account lines up with Paul's account. He gives us some details about his persecutions in 2 Corinthians 11, where he says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Why do I highlight that in yellow? Because those beatings most likely occurred during Paul's ministry in Syria and Cilicia. The stoning occurred in Lystra in Acts 14. So before that, he was often beaten because of preaching the gospel, probably in synagogues most of the time. Those shipwrecks come at the end of Acts, by the way. Recall that it was in these years, these 10 years that he ministered near his hometown, that the Lord prepared and molded Paul for his future ministry throughout the Roman Empire. He grew as a preacher. He grew as an evangelist, and he learned the value of suffering for Christ. He learned what it meant to persevere. So many years have passed in that ministry, and then we pick up in Galatians chapter 2. Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation, apocalypsis, that I went up And I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Again, this is not the Jerusalem council that we talked about in Acts 15. This is a private meeting with the apostles. Paul shares a story here from his past that relates well to the current crisis in Galatia. It involves a visit to Jerusalem, and it involves a young man named Titus. He's a Gentile believer, and we know that he will be a future leader in the early church. I believe Paul might have deliberately included Titus in this delegation to say, look, I've got a Gentile convert, live and in color, in the flesh, right here. Look at him, ask him what you want. He surely knows that this this will be a controversial thing in Jerusalem. John Stott said it was not in order to stir up strife that he brought Titus with him to Jerusalem, but in order to establish the truth of the gospel. This truth is that Jews and Gentiles are accepted by God on the same terms, namely through faith in Jesus Christ, and must therefore be accepted by the church without any discrimination between them. Here's the breakdown of the 40 years, 14 years, if you want to lay that out. Paul's conversion in Acts 9, 14 years passed before his second visit to Jerusalem in Acts 11.30. And if we break it down further, three years in Damascus and Arabia, that's Galatians 1.18, 10 years in Syria and Cilicia, One more year in Antioch after Barnabas comes and brings him there. So it's been 14 years from his conversion when he goes back to Jerusalem. All right, verse 27 of Acts 11, we see that visit. Now at this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them named Agabus stood up and began to indicate by the Spirit 
that there would certainly be a great famine all over the world. And this took place in the reign of Claudius. And in the proportion that any of the disciples had means, each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. And this they did, sending it in charge of Barnabas and Saul to the elders. This is the visit Paul references in Galatians 2.1. The occasion for the visit is famine relief. He continues the story of Titus, which applies to our current situation. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. Notice those false brethren. We're going to focus on them for a minute. The Titus inclusion is a bit of a mystery. It's not included in Acts, but Paul gives it to us here. Of course, we know Titus will ultimately become the overseer of the church in Crete. While he's in Jerusalem, to sum up, certain false brothers made a huge deal about the fact that one needed to be circumcised to be in the church. This is the Jerusalem council before the Jerusalem council. But Paul says, I never compelled him to do it, and I got the right hand of fellowship from the church in Jerusalem. Let's talk about those false brethren, the pseudodelphoi. What did they do? Well, before we talk about what they do, Paul says false brethren then are a lot like false brethren now. They have a common MO. He says they secretly brought in these, uh, these false brethren. This word, secretly brought in, is only used here in the New Testament. It's closest parallels in 2 Peter 2.1, where Peter warns of false prophets who will secretly induce, uh, introduce destructive heresies. The idea here is it's a conspiracy. They're attempting to poison the well. It's concocted by enemies of the faith. Double agents, those that appear to be brothers but are not. They sneaked in. It's to slip in, to infiltrate. This is a conspiratorial thing, these false brethren. What are they there to do? To, to spy out. Katascopeo is the word. It's a treacherous examination. It's to spy out with ill intent. When we talk about the overseer of a church, we talk about an episkopos or episcopeo to oversee. Well, here they katascope. So the, a faithful elder oversees, a false brother spies. A false brother is, is, is up to something. And then they bring us into bondage. Kata dulao, that you see doulos in that second word. It's used in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty to describe physical enslavement. Their intent is clear. It's not biblical. Now, Paul is speaking about a previous experience he dealt with, but make no mistake, he's pointing out the similar qualities of the false teachers in Galatia. Sometimes they burrow into the house and you have to deal with it. Verse 5, we did not yield to them in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. These false brothers, in contrast to his brethren at Antioch in 1-2, and the Galatian brethren he writes to in one eleven, are not who they seem. They're secretive, insidious in their activity. They're methodical, they're deliberate in their deception. And most importantly, they trample the gospel of grace and they bring their targets into bondage once again. Why is that a dangerous thing? Because when a high view of salvation by grace alone, look at our wall, we have that. A high view of salvation by grace alone through faith alone is abandoned in favor of legalism. A low view of Christ inevitably follows. If it's not salvation by grace through faith, then Christ's work becomes less sufficient because i got to finish the job. It's about me. It's not really about Jesus. It changes the gospel. Christ's sacrifice is no longer sufficient. His work is no longer finished. It makes Christ a liar on the cross. 
And Paul fought it then at Antioch in Jerusalem. He intends to fight it now in Galatia. And as I said last week, we should be intent on fighting it today. Paul is a pastor, and he will passionately defend his sheep, even from those within the church assembly. Don't miss his emotion. These false brethren were men he once believed to be true brethren. Real relationships broken because of sin. That, that's a hurtful thing. That's a difficult thing in ministry. But the gospel is more important. The church is more important. Jesus is more important. And so Paul does the hard thing. And he fights the good fight to the glory of God. He says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, There is a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Think of all the churches Paul planted. And he worries and he prays and he, he loves these people. He says, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? He's thinking about individuals and other churches that he shared the gospel with. What happened to Paul in Jerusalem wasn't an isolated incident. Paul was on the defense continually. False teaching and opposition to his ministry directly affected the course of the gospel and the vitality of the church in Galatia and elsewhere. And the same is true today. Wherever the church languishes or the gospel is compromised or scandal blemishes the witness of God's people, all Christians everywhere should feel as Paul did. Empathy, common burden, pain for what's going on. Let's conclude with the last few verses. I'll put all these together. But from those who were of high reputation, those who were of high reputation, another contrast, the false brethren, with those who were of high reputation, And in verse 9, he'll tell us who these men are, James and Cephas, Peter and John. He says, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Now, don't read that as if Paul's like, I don't care about these guys. He's not dismissing them. He's not disrespecting them. He's acknowledging them with their, their authority. They're of high reputation, but not as the final authority. He's already established that final authority is Christ. Paul is just simply saying, I'm not impressed by external circumstances. I'm not dropping these guys' names so you'll think I'm important. I'm just saying the highest names in our church, the ones you know best, have affirmed my gospel. He's, he's pointing out 1 Samuel 16, 7. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's what he's saying. He says, well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. I didn't get my gospel from them. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, the Jews, For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles and recognized the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. Again, dropping these names is not hero worship. No, he's simply saying that his ministry, although already legitimate because it was given to him by Christ, was rubber-stamped at the mother church by none other than the apostles and the bishop of that church themselves. He had not added to it. He had not taken away from it. He had preached the gospel faithfully without ever sitting under the teaching of an apostle, and the apostles said, keep preaching the gospel. Again, further legitimizing the apostolic calling by Christ himself. That's the accusation he's dealing with in Galatia. So what does Paul say there that we want to grab? Two apostles, one gospel. Paul and Peter preached the same gospel. They just had two separate missions. Some of us are called to preach the gospel in this country. Some missionaries are called to preach the gospel in other countries. Some are called to preach in rural settings. Some are called to preach in urban settings. Some are are called to share the gospel in your workplace, in your school, you name it. We have different missions, fields, but we all preach the same gospel. 
It doesn't mean, however, that Peter never preached to Gentiles and Paul never preached to Jews. We see both of those happen in Acts. However, Paul speaks to a primary mission. And further, a primary mission specifically prepared for them by a sovereign God. God called them to different missions and different constituencies, but they were given the same gospel, and they, they both preached it faithfully. Two men specially gifted, called to ministry, and set apart for specific tasks. Point is, the Lord is ahead of his own HR department. He does his own staffing. We will speak of a conflict between these two men next week. We'll talk about that. But their paths are intimately interconnected in church history. They will most likely cross paths again in Corinth, or at least just miss each other. They'll also be in Rome together during Paul's first Roman imprisonment. Catholic tradition holds that they were both executed the same day in Rome. Don't know that it was the same day, but it was very close together. Same wicked emperor. It will be Peter who first acknowledges Paul's writings as Scripture in 2 Peter 3.16. But more on that next week. In conclusion, let me return to Paul. This is a 4th century painting of sorts. It's from the catacombs in Rome. It's the oldest depiction we possess of the Apostle Paul. This Apostle Paul, the Hebrew of Hebrews, the zealous Pharisee, the persecutor of the church, the unlikely convert, and the Christ-appointed apostle to the Gentiles. He did not make that spiritual journey in order to stand idly by while false teachers ravaged the church. And he has always been on guard. He's always been the faithful watchman. And that's what every gospel pastor, gospel shepherd, gospel elder is called to be. A man with every reason to be proud becomes humble. A man gives up the world to follow Christ and share in his sufferings. And he did it because the grace of God transformed him. He would point to Christ as his example, as his strength in his times of need, as his hope for eternity. And what we see as a result is a life lived to the glory of God. That's what Paul's saying here. How do you explain me? I'm not supposed to be here. I'm the last guy who should be here. And yet... God's grace was shown to me. Now, we're not Paul. We probably couldn't be if we tried. However, the same shepherd found you wandering far from the fold of God. The same blood paid for our sin if you're in Christ this morning. The same grace atoned for your sin, saved your soul, and enabled your adoption into the family of God. What else could we do but faithfully serve him? If you're going through the motions with Christ, can I just be simple and say, get serious. Imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Read, pray, love your neighbor, make disciples, contend earnestly for the faith, fight the good fight, encourage the saints, all to the glory of God the Father. Now next week, Lord willing, we will rejoin Paul in that good fight. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are mighty, you are worthy. We praise your name this morning. We lift up the gospel of grace that you've given us so freely through your Son. Freely to us, but costly to you. Father, that Christ died in our place, that took on our sin, that bled, suffered, died for us. Lord, but you declared him the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. We praise you for the resurrection, Lord. We praise you for that hope, that secured hope of the future for all those who have come to Christ in faith, for the salvation that you've given us, for the gospel that we have the privilege to preach, for the church that we have the privilege to serve. But I pray you'd give us opportunities 
like that this week. Convict us, Lord. Encourage us. Exhort us. Help us to serve you with our whole hearts, our whole minds, our soul, our strength. And we will give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd invite you to stand as we close with holy, holy.